This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Stay on the trail. It's advice Loretta McElhinney gives out constantly. People just don't realize that, especially in the alpine, you know, five footprints can kill a plant. And wandering off a trail can kill a hiker. We hear stories like that in the news all the time. Loretta McElhinney is a master trail designer with the U.S. Forest Service, and she works on Colorado's highest mountains. You've seen her designs if you've hiked the North Mount Albert Trail. It's where she was doing maintenance work when CPR's Stephanie Wolf caught up with her. Loretta McElhinney often gets up as early as 3 in the morning so she can reach the section of trail she's working on. Today it's at 12,000 feet. you got to admit, the commute to my office is not bad. Not too bad at all. <laughs> Wait till you see the views from my corner office. They're stunning. After all, this is Colorado's tallest mountain. McElhenney and her co-worker Dana Young don't have a lot of time today, or any day really. So yeah, we stopped here yesterday, and then we'll just be going until pretty much we get chased off the mountain. <laughs> until the storm comes in. They unpack bundles of wooden stakes and write notes on them with markers. Passing hikers want to know, what's up? What are those markers for? We're going to be doing some heavy maintenance work on the trail, so we're, we're writing notes, and we write notes every 100 feet, so these stakes are to, to mark every 100 feet. Young hikes up ahead, dragging a tape measure and hammers in the stakes. Next to the official trail is what McElhaney calls a socially created one. She points to a stretch of bare earth where there's no plants because of foot traffic. Fundamentally, McElhaney's job is to tell people to stay on the designated trail, not with words, but through clever design. I like to say that 90% of my job is psychology and 10% of my job is engineering. She and her crew use barriers when they can. Like a buck and rail fence or maybe a two-layer like retaining wall out of logs along here. So basically it's easier for somebody to step up or down on the existing checks than it is to step up and over that thing, okay? And it has to be that that instantaneous. And she says they'll disguise the unofficial trail with plants. Add some rocks in there so it's uncomfortable for people to walk over there. And hopefully we can close that off and keep people on the existing trail. It's hard work and expensive. It can cost an average of half a million dollars to build a trail like this, plus maintenance. The Colorado 14ers initiative says where we are, Mount Elbert, was the state's busiest 14er last year. The federal government covers McElhenney's salary, but most of the money for this kind of work comes from nonprofits like the initiative. This North Mount Elbert trail means a lot to McElhenney because it was the first one she ever designed. Looking at it today, she finds fault in her earlier work pointing to some erosion from water that flows down. It's a learning experience every day. Um, I look at things that I did back in 1992 or 93, and I'm like, what was I thinking? (laughs) (laughs) But I've learned from my mistakes. At 54, McElhenney says she doesn't push it as hard as she used to, but she's still fast. She left me out of breath. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. Well, over the years, Loretta McElhenney has had some memorable experiences atop Colorado's highest mountains. She took some time to share a few of them with me, like when lightning struck her work site. It blew the soles of my boots off, 
and burned through where my stays were in my pack, I've learned that when I wake up every morning, I say, this mountain can kill you. Think about it. Be safe. I try and and look up. I also work with a partner who is very good at uh, watching the weather for me. Because sometimes I get involved in what I'm doing, and I don't pay as close attention as I know I should. Oh, I mean, there's a lot to pay attention to, I gather. Um, what does a ground strike feel like? So that means that the lightning hit the ground and you were standing in proximity. Take me into that, that predicament. I honestly don't remember anything other than a flash of light. I came to, I was surrounded by a bunch of volunteers who I had been trying to get off the mountain. And I said, what the heck are you doing standing here? Get off this mountain. And uh, we all got back to camp. And I didn't even know I didn't have soles on my boots until I got to camp. <laughs> oh, my gosh. When you say you came to, did you lose consciousness? Yeah, or? it knocked me out for, for I, I don't even know how long. It knocked me out. You're so calm about it. <laughs> Loretta. <laughs> <laughs> it's what I do. And this was this was quite a while ago. Um, and like I said, I, I learned from my experiences and uh, I get the heck off the mountains when the lightning comes in. I'm curious how you know a certain route will make a good trail. Maybe you've uh, come to just see lines in the mountains that that you know will work. What are you looking for? Uh, I think that most people are out on a trail to experience different things. I love it when I can bring people around a corner where the wind hits them in a certain way or where there's a cliff face that they can see the beautiful lichens on. Or maybe maybe there's a drop-off where they can look way down into the wilderness. Those kinds of things make for a beautiful trail. It strikes me that with so many people climbing Colorado's 14ers each year, that you are navigating tension. And the tension is between wanting to bring people to these places and to do so safely and, as you've described, in a way that inspires them. But I don't know. You don't want to bring too many people, right, and and have the mountain abused. Talk to me about how you navigate that tension. Well... I strongly believe that if we don't get people on the mountains, if people don't have this experience, that they won't be advocates for the mountains and they won't be advocates for their public lands or their public land management agencies. And so it's really important to get people out on these mountains. As long as they recognize how impactful their use can be, then we can actually reduce the impacts and more feet can be on there without seeing the impacts that we currently see. And part of that is education. Hey, folks, stay on the trail. Mm -hmm. The brown stuff. And, you know, it's almost difficult in many places because if a few people have walked off the trail and that vegetation is trampled, to the uneducated eye, that looks like a trail. And they're drawn to it because maybe it's softer. Maybe it's, you know, with the roots still there, maybe it's a little more secure footing. But you walk over there, those plants are gone. Now we have a second erosion gully occurring on the mountain. Ah, so think 
not just about your own footprints, but how they might influence or be a signal to others who follow. That's fascinating. I want to talk about what constraints you have in your work, because you're, you're often working on public lands, right? And it's not as if you could come in and just uh, pave a trail. Does this work come with a lot of asterisks about what you can do? Well, of course. You know, we have a four-year planning process before we ever put a crew out to work on a mountain. I have a whole bunch of other people looking at the trail, specialists in soils and waters and botany and wildlife, who are also looking at that route with me. And we come up with the best idea. Can we avoid this section to avoid this rare plant? Can we avoid this section, which is habitat for a rare bird species? Those kinds of things. You know, many of our mountains are in wilderness, congressionally designated wilderness. In wilderness, we, um, we have group size limits. That makes it a little difficult to get large work groups on the mountain. They also restrict us from using mechanized or motorized equipment. And so that means that we're pretty much using primitive tools. We're getting our camps in on the backs of horses. And we can't even use a wheelbarrow because that is considered a mechanized piece of equipment. So oh, wow. everything's haul, hand-hauled. And um, we use primitive tools, meaning the same picks that the miners used back in the day. You must be exhausted at the end of a day. <laughs> My work crews are more so than I am. Uh-huh. And I'm not swinging a pick all day. The work crews, who are the heroes in all of this, are exhausted at the end of the day. Yeah, tell me about them. Who are they? Who do they tend to be? They love the outdoors. They love these mountains. And they like the physical labor. They like that manual labor. I know I was one of those at one point in my life. I really can't swing a pick all day anymore, but I can climb up and down these mountains and design trails. And they are volunteers or paid or what? Well, they're they're both. We utilize all kinds of individuals. These trails are very technical in nature. And so it's not everybody who has the technical skills to build a 100-year rock retaining wall or install, you know, 100-year steps on a mountain. So you're building for a century, huh? That's our plan. And, of course, that means that there's still maintenance. Like I said, a sustainable trail is a maintainable trail. How did you get into this work, Loretta? I lucked into it. I uh, got a job back in the day working on trail crew. I had a friend who worked trail crew, and uh, she decided that year she wasn't going to do it. So she took me into the Forest Service office and said, hey, I think this gal would be really good at this trail work stuff. Mm -hmm. And I got a seasonal job with the Forest Service, and I absolutely loved it, and I love it today. Are there idols for you in this line of work? Oh, of course. One of my big idols is, uh, and she's sadly no longer with us, Goody Gaskell. She was very foundational in the construction of the Colorado Trail. When I first started working trails, I often got to work with Goody, and she was an amazing, inspirational woman. What are the kinds of things she would tell you about this work? It was more that she liked 
to joke with me. When we were working on trails, she would joke with me on things like, God, I love to see a woman that can swing an axe. (laughs) And, you know, (laughs) and she also reminded me all the time that it's all about how the water moves on the trails and um, that the experience is necessary. If we aren't providing a good experience to the hikers, then we're probably going to lose them off our trail. It's been really fun to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And get out there and enjoy the mountains. Master Trail Designer Loretta McElhenney manages the U.S. Forest Service's 14ers program. You can find photos of her and her crew working on Mount Albert at cprnews.org. During the Rwandan genocide in 1994, roughly 800,000 people were slaughtered in 100 days. When the nightmare was over, there was a country to rebuild, and a lot of that work fell to people like Aloysia Inyumba. After the tragic events, there was a general feeling among the women that time is now. We have to do something now. The heaviest toll of all this conflict falls on the women, either a woman as a mother Either a woman has lost a husband, so the genocide has changed the family structure. Today, women hold 64% of the seats in Rwanda's parliament. They are cabinet members and judges and run local governments. There's a new book about them called Rwandan Women Rising, and the author has deep roots in Colorado. She is Swanee Hunt, co-founder of the Women's Foundation of Colorado and a member of the state's Women's Hall of Fame. She's former ambassador to Austria and is now based at Harvard University. And Ambassador Hunt, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much, Ryan. I'd actually like to learn a little bit more about Aloysia Inyumba. Uh, she's something of a heroine to you. She was a leader in the reconciliation after the genocide in Rwanda and helped find homes for hundreds of thousands of orphans. Tell me a little bit about your friend who died in, uh, I think, 2012. Yes, uh, died in her 40s. Uh, you know, she's so soft-spoken, and she always was at the beginning, kind of like a Baptist preacher who's, who starts uh, softly and then winds up. And huh. uh, she was a major, major force, at really the leader organizing the women of Rwanda. And they created these village councils because when a woman was with men, she was not to speak. This wasn't like this you know, really progressive country for women at all. You know, they had zero employment except out in the fields. So they created women-only councils, 15,000 of them for these villages. And that's the work of Inyumba. I, I call her by the her last name, which is very common for her. Um, and so uh, there were all these villages, and they were in. you would run for a place on the village, and then you would run for the next level, you know, which, which was smaller, and run again. And there were these six levels. So by the time you got to the top, you were really out there. You had name recognition. You were used to telling your story, and you could run for office. And then she was the person who then shepherded it so that there was also, in addition, this push from the bottom, the pull from the top. She was very, very close to the president, and he and other members of the top uh, political structure and in Yumba kept pulling up these women and Several got on. Several of the women got onto the uh, constitutional 
drafting commission. And so they were instrumental in getting a 30 percent set aside of seats, in other words, like a quota in the legislature. And so you had all these women who'd come up through the women-only villages, I mean, village councils, and then they were ready to go into those 30 percent of the seats. And that's how you built year after year those numbers in the uh, parliament. Yeah, and let, it was because of Inumba. Let me say that, that Rwanda was the first country, I believe, in the world with a majority of women in its parliament. And I think it's really helpful to understand the precarious place women had before the genocide and why the genocide was so transformational for women in particular. So before, uh, as you said, uh, they were very limited. They couldn't own land, for instance. The genocide happens, and a post-genocide census finds that 60% of Tutsi survivors, for instance, were female. Many suddenly head of households and sole providers for their surviving children, other young family members, or friends they had taken in. And so in some ways, the, the genocide and its effects necessitated a role for women who, who largely were survivors. You know, I was talking to a top political leader who told me that after the genocide, it it was so traumatic for the men, and they tended to recede. And you find this all over the world. I've worked in 60 countries uh, on an idea called inclusive security, and that's about how you bring women in to rebuild after a conflict. Mm -hmm. But Rwanda was the perfect example. You had chaos there, and the chaos cracked open the culture. You couldn't go back to the way things were. And, you know, the women, Let's and this, this story is repeated really, truly, if hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of times I heard this kind of story. And uh, it was repeated millions of times. I didn't hear it millions. I didn't need to. So a woman is gang raped, okay, until she's unconscious. And then she she comes out of her... She becomes conscious, and she has next to her an infant, and she has three children who've been uh, slaughtered. Oh, uh, that That's the kind of situation. But what does she do? Like, she has to put that infant to her breast. What, I mean, what, what are her options? And then she has to figure out how to bury the corpses of her three children. Like, what are her options? Like, so in the moment— she has to. I mean, I, I'll keep saying that. So out of that then comes this this strength. And the, for, may I give an example? I, um, sure, sure. And, and let me just say that, that, that rape, yeah. rape was, was a tool during the genocide. And, and you note women and girls impregnated during attacks had to choose between agonizing options. Terminating a pregnancy is illegal in Rwanda, though many clandestine abortions likely took place with serious lasting health consequences. You say some women abandoned babies born of rape or gave them up for adoption. Others decided to raise the children and deal with their own conflicted feelings. And so the the, the rapes had, had lasting effects for sure. And, and you were going to mention someone else that you uh, profile in this book, Swanee Hunt. The book is Rwandan Women Rising. Well, but before I do, I want to stay with what you said. I was... I was um, at an organization, uh, call it 15 years ago, and it was widows who had been raped and they had AIDS. And so there was one woman who came up to me and she held out her hand um, to take mine. And, you know, all 
it was just skin and bones, right? And she said to me, um, I'm going to die soon, and I want you to tell my story. I don't want my story to die with me. And that is the basis of my writing this book. I, for me, it's not my analysis. It's what the women said. It's what I put it together, right? They were telling me in bits and pieces what they had done. A lot of people knew that the, the statistics you said, you know, 64% of the parliament, blah, 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 blah. But people didn't know how it happened. It, in fact, even the Rwandan women hadn't stepped back and said, how did we do this? So that was my part. But it was really the women's voices that I bring out here. And so, one, one of them belongs to, I, I heard you saying her name earlier, this uh, woman, Annunciata. Um, yes. And, and yes. on the first day of the genocide, her husband was murdered. She fled with her 18-month-old son, and she was at the time eight months pregnant. What, what happened next? Well, she had to find shelter. People were, were frantically trying to escape the genocide perpetrators uh, who were armed with clubs and machetes mostly. And so she hid in a doghouse with her little one, and she gave birth in this kennel, in this doghouse. And then, then the, um, the soldiers come, and they've driven away the genocide perpetrators, and she comes out. It's not like then the social services surrounded her. I mean, there were no social services. So she goes into a church, and she's sitting there, and some other women come in, and first there's this, you know, this fear— and then they come together. And so fast forward, they end up with Annunciata and these other women every day cooking together. And they're, But this is the important thing. They're cooking not just to feed Annunciata's children, but the other women are actually the wives of men who have been now imprisoned for perpetrating the genocide. So here you've got Annunciata whose husband has been slaughtered by men like the ones in prison, if not the very ones. And she's fixing food to take to them. Prisons don't have any food, okay, in, in these parts of the world. So the women have to take the food every single day. So it's, that is the symbol to me of how women stepped into the breach here and helped heal their country after that genocide. And when they did that at this granular level, they created a model for sustainable peace and security all over the world. And so that's what I mean by inclusive security, where you bring in the women's uh, contribution. And that applies to our country, by the way. Yeah, it's, you know, I want to you say know, that I, you, you've co-founded the Women's Foundation of Colorado, which started in the mid-1980s. And I, I wonder if you saw a similar working style there. Oh, absolutely. So, so here's the deal. I, I was the one who was doing most of the fundraising with Dottie Lamb, as you know, First Lady. So went down to Colorado Springs. And everybody listening to this knows the difference in cultures between Colorado Springs and Boulder. So I go down to Colorado Springs and I say, hey, would you give gazillions of dollars to help start this women's foundation? And, you know, we're going to focus on, on – strengthening women so they aren't at the mercy of social services so they can go to college, so they can get jobs, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And so the women in Colorado Springs say, 
oh, yeah, yeah, this is great because it's not part of the women's movement, that feminist group. And so then I go up to Boulder. And so I say, hey, you know, would you give gazillions of dollars to this idea of starting this women's foundation, et cetera? And they say, oh, I've been a feminist all my life. This sounds, this sounds perfect. And then, then we create this board. And, you know, we're all together on this board. And it was magic. It was magic because these women – then we bring in women who are working with migrant workers, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're all there in this room together. And that's what I mean. That's like the village councils, the women's councils. So that becomes a training ground for these women. Uh, a lot of them represented the grassroots on that board. Ambassador so, Hunt, when I, I see that – yeah. Yeah, I just want to say that, that, that there's a risk perhaps – in, in talking about women's roles in Rwanda and here in Colorado, as you were witness to, of, of um, painting it as all sweetness and light. And, you know, women are, are just as capable as men of being political and confrontational and, and perhaps petty. Uh, talk about the nuances there, William. Well, I'm, first, I, I'm not going to accept your premise. Okay. When you say they are just – maybe they're just as capable of being just competitive or whatever the word was. But they aren't. They don't do it. I mean, women – I mean, if you think about the political parties in the U.S. and without becoming partisan here, I, just think in in recent memory how women have, have come – come across the parties to to break the gridlock. And, you know, we see that in the headlines, but it's happening among women in the Congress uh, just in all day long. And we have new research that shows how many bills they're co-sponsoring compared to the men. And, and we've interviewed like hundreds of them, and they say, oh, we're much more collaborative. So uh, that we see here in our country, what we see in countries all over the world. And my goal was to give voice to these Rwandan women, not so people can know about Rwanda, but, you know, we do a lot of hand-wringing about, oh, my, we're so divided. Oh, you know, what are we going to do? I listen to pundits all the time, and I say, well, you know, so tell us, what are we going to do? And they stop with, oh, we're so divided. And I, I say, come on, come on, people. If you don't have any ideas, let me give you one. Right? Because if the women in Rwanda could help heal their country from wounds far, far deeper than we'll ever know, and if they could cross these unfathomable chasms, and then we're going to say that we have these ideological divides, and so this is the end of the world? You don't accept that premise either, it sounds like. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so we we, yeah. we have a, about a minute left, and I wonder if you might leave us with um, the, the role of women in Rwanda today and whether you think that it will continue to be strong. Because I, I want to point out that the Rwandan president, uh, Paul Kagame, who actually was, was quite instrumental in, in boosting women up, has changed laws such that he can run again and is becoming, I think, in, in some people's views, dictatorial. Uh, what does what the future hold in, in just the last few seconds here? Sure. And this book, to be really clear, this book is not a political analysis or sociological sample. I was tell, I, what I'm doing, I'm, I'm putting forward the untold story, which is the role of women. And I asked the very question that you're asking me, 
is this really just uh, for this period of time? I asked that over and over in Rwanda. I asked men as well as women, and they said there's no way when you have these kinds of numbers and this amount of strength and this much experience among these women, there's no way that they're going to slip back to to zero employment and uh, and be at the mercy of their husbands. So uh, they are a model. They are a model to us and to the world. And we would do well to look very, very closely at how they did it. Swanee Hunt's book is Rwandan Women Rising. She's former U.S. ambassador to Austria and teaches at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. She used to live in Colorado, co-founded the Women's Foundation here, and is in the state's Women's Hall of Fame. Sheep rancher Connie Theos has been at it for almost 72 years. She's on 4,000 acres near Meeker and was just named Colorado Wool Grower of the Year. She is the third member of the Theos family to earn that honor, along with her late father Nick and her cousin Angelo. Connie Theos is taking a break from her daily chores to join us from her ranch, and welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Pleasure to speak with you. And I, I will say that sheep have been a big part of, of your 72 years, really since day one. On the day you were born, your dad was out tending sheep in a mountain snowstorm and didn't get to see you until you were 10 days old. And your earliest memories are of perching on a fence to help watch over sheep in their pens. Connie, have you ever felt that you've had enough of sheep? Absolutely not. They're the greatest animals in the world. What makes you say that? Well, I, I really truly believe that um, there's a reason that we hear, you know, uh, about in religion that about shepherds. Uh, sheep provide food. They provide fiber. Um, they provide. They provide everything you need. And in many parts of the world. Um, they sustain total societies. Yeah. How are they as company? How are sheep as, as to, just to hang out with? Actually, right now we have 12 bum lambs here, and they become really attached to people just like your dog would or any, anything else. You kind of have to watch them so they don't jump in your truck and want to go with you. Um, they're, they're good companions in the sense of if you take them as as bum lambs. But as far as when they're out um, on the open range, I would say the biggest thing that you see is total, there's a total peace about them. They are good for the inside of you just to sit and watch them eat. Mm. You know, they're they're just good animals. You're talking about bum lambs. Those are are weak lambs. No, Uh, no, these are orphan lambs. Orphan lambs. Okay. Got it. Uh, and so the care of sheep, which you raise for both wool and meat, has always come first on the Theos Ranch. Uh, are, are there other times besides your birth um, when life has taken a, a back seat to sheep? Oh, I'd say many times. Um, there, there are, looking back, you know, there might have been a time when, as a family, we were all going to go to town to the movie. When Meeker still had a movie, we don't anymore. Hmm. And something would happen, and big disappointment. Didn't get to go to the show because the ewe lambs got in the alfalfa field. You know, those kinds of things happen all the time with the, in the sheep industry. Um, you think you have a plan, and... 
something happens and it gets changed. But we we just do it because it's the way we were we were raised and we enjoy it. And boy, I'll tell you, there's no better way to grow up than on a ranch. Yeah, your family has been sheep ranching in northwest Colorado for nearly a century. At one point, the Theos Ranch covered around 15,000 acres. How, how did the Theos Ranching enterprise begin? Uh, my grandfather came from Greece, and um, at one point in time, he, was, he used to say that they unloaded the Greeks in Utah off the train and the Baskos in Nevada. And uh, they worked in the coal mines, he and his, who became his brothers-in-law. And they were approached by a banker from Bernal, Utah, who said, is there anyone here who knows about sheep? And they said, yeah, we do. And so he made them a deal that if they would gather these sheep that the bank had loaned money on and the fellow who had borrowed the money took off, that uh, they could have the sheep and he would help them get in business. He just needed to gather up uh, his investment. And that's really how they started. Mm. And that was in Utah, and of course at that time that was prior to the Taylor Grazing Act. And so public land, they used that, and um, then at that time as well, the mines up around Leadville, et cetera, were, all those tailings were starting to get covered with weeds. So they, the government paid the train fare for sheep people to haul their sheep to that high country to eat those weeds. Oh, wow. So it gave them a real opportunity to get started for what it, it would be not a lot of money. You you mentioned the Taylor, that's the Taylor Grazing Act of 1934, which had to do with grazing on, on public lands. And yes. if you're just joining us, I'm Ryan Warner, and you're listening to Colorado Matters, and we're speaking with Connie Theos, uh, who has been named Colorado Wool Grower of the Year. She joins us from her family's... Uh, Sheep Ranch near Meeker, Colorado. And what is a day like for you, Connie? Um, tell me when you get up and what the, the first chores are. Usually when, <clears throat> if you're here at the ranch, the first thing you have to do is, if there are horses in the corral, you got to feed them. You have to feed the bum lambs. Um, and, all, you know, just normal, everyday things. And from there, you go to move camps or haul water or every day is different. That's kind of what makes it work, is there's there's nothing routine about a sheep ranch. Hmm. Uh, what's the strangest encounter you've had tending sheep? Mm, I suppose um, any time that you come up on uh, sheep that have been, you know, killed by bears and that kind of thing, it, it, it makes you kind of sick to your stomach. Does that, and, does that um, happen a lot? Oh, yes. Yeah, especially now, there's just so many bear, and not much that we could do about it, other than with the Wildlife Services uh, trapper, they're they're allowed to to do something about them. But you know, <clears throat> with um, all of the regulations and things that get put forth uh, by people who are not on the land in our referendum ballots and this kind of thing. It it makes it very difficult for people in the livestock industry to continue, but we love it, and so we just keep fighting. Now, you are reimbursed, right, when an animal is killed? Well, yes. 
for bear and lion, not for coyotes. Even though they sell um, in order to hunt a coyote, if you're from, you know, just they do sell a small game license, but we don't get compensated for that. But for every lamb or you that's killed by a bear or lion that you can that you find my dad always said there are four more that you didn't find mm. and uh, when you come back in the fall to ship lambs and your tally is off um you know sometimes by 20 percent 25 percent then that's a true statement yeah just if, of, of what the math is and of course your work obviously depends on on the the seasons um, and I want to say that you, you get reimbursed, um, but it, it doesn't cover future lambs from one you, correct? Uh, no, it does not. Yeah, and that's, that's a big deal. Yeah, it is. Especially when they kill a two-year-old you who has a production cycle of here on the open range of maybe five, six more years. Is it true that you also have a measure of fame around Meeker for your culinary skills with lamb? No, 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 not me. I'm I'm probably the least uh, domestic inside person. Oh, I can cook lamb, absolutely. Uh-huh. You know, but no, um, they're like my cousin Angelo. He's a lot better lamb cook than I am. Okay. They barbecue, and I do want to say there is a, a fourth theist that uh, was Colorado Wool Grower of the Year, and that's my cousin Angelo's son Anthony. And, um, yeah, so the family has, t- has taken. Him. Yeah, this take this uh, family has taken this honor quite quite a bit. The Colorado Wool Grower of the Year, and I understand that part of the reason you landed that uh, is not just because of the ranching you do, but uh, the work you do in general in sort of the industry of sheep ranching. Is that right? Yes, um, promotions, uh, adv- advocacy for trying to, to stay in business. Um, we are, all livestock people have to advocate for themselves because there's no <clears throat> big group of people as the environmental groups, uh, have lots and lots of people that join their, in, you know, join and pay dues or whatever they do. Uh, we don't have that. So we end up advocating for ourselves, which sometimes is a little tough. I understand that it can be difficult to bring in immigrant workers. Is that right? Actually, it's it's the paperwork that's involved and mm-hmm. all the regulation and all this kind of thing. Uh, we can't survive in this industry without H-2A workers today. There, are, there just aren't any Americans who will do this job. I mean, we, we have – when you bring in an H-2A worker, you need to advertise for an American worker. And if an American worker applies, then that's who you need to hire. And we don't ever have any American applicants for the job. And it's not necessarily because of salary or anything else. It's because they just don't want to do it. They don't want to be um, out by themselves. Um, they don't. They they're just not tied to the land. H two A. That's really what it's all about. Yeah, H two A visas. These are farm worker visas. Uh, in, in just the last few seconds, Connie, uh, in spite of all the challenges, is there anything in the world that would pry you off that ranch now? No. No. No, no, uh-uh. Maybe a casket. Okay. <laughs> you don't plan to be buried there? Mm. No, I'm going to be buried here next to my dad. Oh, lovely. So not not even that. Connie, thank you for being with us. We really appreciate it. You 
bet. Thank you. Connie Theus is this year's Colorado Wool Grower of the Year. You'll find her dishing up lamb kebabs on the last day of this year's Meeker Classic Sheepdog Championship Trials, which run September 6th through 10th. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Don't underestimate young people. That's the message we got from a listener the other day, and we're going to hear his feedback now in loud and clear. Andy Syracuse of Evergreen caught my recent interview with Colorado State historian Patty Limerick. After the violence in Charlottesville, Virginia, we talked with Limerick about monuments and buildings that honor controversial figures. She told us about a dorm at CU Boulder that was named for a politician who took part in the Sand Creek Massacre, in which at least 150 American Indians were slaughtered. Students protested and got the dorm's name changed to Cheyenne Arapaho Hall. Limerick says that was good news. The bad news is that the great, great, great majority of the residents don't know why it's called that. So they have abbreviated it to Shiho. Not so, says that listener Andy Syracuse. He went to CU Boulder, lived in that dorm, and says students are aware of the name's significance. We were all very aware of the history. There had been plenty of education in the hall and throughout the campus about the reason behind that name change. However, we felt the need to shorten the name not as a sign of disrespect towards the Native American tribes that it references, but rather as an attempt to succinctly state the place that we were talking about. There was feedback as well to my conversation the other day with Holocaust survivor Eric Kahn, who lives in Denver. When he was four, his parents made the difficult decision to separate from him. They wound up at Auschwitz. He hid in the basement of a French Christian family. I had a garden-level window I could look out of, and I was able to see the Nazis' boots marching up and down outside. Well, a number of you were moved by Khan's story, including Ellie Miller-Greenberg of Centennial. She wrote, These are important reminders. Not many survivors are still alive, so we must hear those who are still with us. Thanks for your comments. Keep them coming. Find all the ways to reach us at cprnews.org slash connect. Recreational marijuana sales are illegal in Colorado's second biggest city, Colorado Springs. At the same time, that city faces a budget crisis, and some see a connection. CPR's Allison Sherry reports. You can't really talk about recreational marijuana in Colorado Springs unless you also talk about stormwater. Here's why. The city has had egregious stormwater problems since residents got rid of their fees a few years ago. The problems costing the city $20 million a year of general tax dollars. This is severely breaking its budget. Officials haven't been able to hire enough police officers or water their parks or replace the city's aging vehicle fleet. City Council President Richard Scorman says the city could use the tax windfall it would gain from allowing recreational marijuana stores. The issue for me is we should have the revenue because it's legal. Scorman has ambitious goals to try and change Colorado Springs' reputation for being a conservative, religious, military town. 
He owns a pizzeria and wine bar near Colorado College, and he says allowing rec pot shops to open within city limits would help with that image update. But Scorman says the extra money would also allow the city to hire more law enforcement, something he says is desperately needed, in part for marijuana. We do have a black market problem here. We, we don't have the enforcement to take care of it. And then there's more serious drug problems out there that I would love to see some of this money go towards. Citizens for Safer Neighborhoods, an interest group primarily paid for by the medical marijuana industry, is urging city council to put a recreational pot sales measure on the ballot this fall. The group recently paid for a study that found recreational pot sales could net more than $20 million a year for the city in tax revenues. That is, coincidentally, about the same amount of money Colorado Springs spends on stormwater every year. The group's leader, Mike Elliott, says legalization would also help with the rampant marijuana black market. The problem is that marijuana is being used and sold one way or the other, but by banning the legal sales, the community is really just putting these criminals in charge of it. But it's clear that Colorado Springs residents aren't only getting their pot on the black market. Many are using medical marijuana instead. Colorado Springs has 6,000 more people using medical marijuana than in Denver. But because medical marijuana is taxed at a much lower rate, the city isn't reaping the same financial benefits. There's also tiny Manitou Springs, just a few miles down the road from Colorado Springs. Two recreational pot shops there are among the most lucrative in the entire state. That city's tax receipts have jumped almost $3 million in the past few years, allowing officials to invest in infrastructure, including stormwater improvements. On a recent sunny weekday afternoon, one of those Manitou Springs marijuana businesses was bustling with customers and out-of-state license plates. Locals in this little town at the base of Pikes Peak say the legal marijuana business has changed its dynamic, and some would welcome a little competition from the big city next door. Tony White lives near the main drag, which is often clogged with traffic. The population of El Paso County, around 700,000 people, everyone who wanted marijuana would have to come down a two-lane road through my neighborhood. I know that's not the in-my-backyard type of thing, but um, that's the way I felt about it. But Colorado Springs' most powerful leaders are not as enthusiastic. Mayor John Southers, who is also the state's former attorney general, calls recreational marijuana an unstable revenue source, given that the federal government could crack down at any time. Do you really want to base your funding of essential government services on drug sales in violation of federal law? Southers also worries that allowing recreational sales could hurt the city's standing with the military and the U.S. Olympic Committee which is based in Colorado Springs. The proponents of recreational marijuana would like to say, we'll solve all your funding problems. And to that, I would respond, uh, gee whiz, uh, have we solved all our statewide road problems or education problems by having uh, recreational marijuana? No. El Paso County Commissioner Mark Waller agrees with Southers, saying he thinks legalizing pot creates more problems than it solves. People keep talking about revenue as some magic elixir cure-all for having marijuana in our community. The cost of regulation, the cost of additional prosecutions, and the social costs related to it far outweigh any sort of economic benefit that we get. City council leaders and Mayor Southers may be at odds over recreational pot, but they do agree on one thing. This is not likely the year to take the question to voters they do not want to distract from another important issue facing voters this fall. 
new fees to fund the city's stormwater system. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner. And the show is at Colorado Matters. We're also on Facebook, CPR News. This is Colorado Public Radio. Thanks for being with us.